You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. So we, uh, we are indeed going over Genesis 19 today, so this is your forewarning of that. Genesis 19 is going to be talking about the destruction of Sodom, and there's a lot of, lot of hard stuff in today's message. Um, and so going over it, presented it first time on Thursday, and after the service, uh, Norma, where'd she go? She was here a moment ago. Norma came up and encouraged me and just was very uh, pleased with how it went. And she also shared after 40 years of attending church, she had never heard someone preach on Genesis 19. <laughs> and on one side, that was encouraging. And on the other side, I was a little discouraged by the fact that everyone else has avoided it. Because it's a really hard chapter. And so I want to encourage you this morning that we cannot avoid the hard things in life. We cannot avoid it just because it's difficult and that we don't want to, and it's going to be a hard conversation or a hard thing to approach. It's not healthy. We have to face the hard things in life. We have to face them as God leads us and how he leads us through that. But we have to face the hard things. Um, a little bit of a background for this chapter. We've been, uh, it's on the heels of Genesis 18, where it's talking about uh, the three visitors came and Abraham saw them and how his exceptional hospitality towards them. That's actually really important in light of this chapter of how uh, Abraham behaved. And that was more of the standard of expectation of how you would have treated people you did not know. One of those visitors ends up actually being the Lord. Two of the others are angels that are with him. Um, and then they talk about uh, the promise of the son for him, Sarah's reaction to that, and then God reveals to Abraham that he's about to go and destroy Sodom. The very end of that chapter, we get Abraham accusing God, are you actually just? Are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? And this whole difficult interaction sometimes we have with God about how could you possibly do these things? And so then last week in our fifth, uh, fifth Sunday, we talked about the parable of the two sons, a little bit of follow-up to this, um, chapter 18 on who will you be in this life? How will you react to the people around you? How will you respond to life situations as they're thrown your way? And so with that in mind and with this chapter in mind, we have to realize that life does have consequences. God will forgive you of everything if you humbly come before him and genuinely repent and seek his forgiveness. But the life while we're here will still have consequences for the actions we take. We still have to walk it out while we're here. There is a, quite easily ways we can get ourselves into a situation where there are no good choices to make. There are only bad choices. There are only difficult things. There's only anything you do is going to be the lesser of two evils. And keeping in mind that the lesser evil is still an evil. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus and his ways so that we don't find ourselves in those situations. As Lot has found himself in today. So a little, this whole chapter is mainly about Lot and his situation in Sodom. And the fact that it would have been better if he wasn't there. 
um, because then he wouldn't be faced with some impossible situations. It would have been better if Lot was not tempted by the good land and the prosperity, because it's very clear that Lot was a very good businessman. He was very wealthy. He had multiplied all that he had, and he parked himself right next to a populated area, probably to continue expanding. He looked at the land and saw that it was good. It was lush, and he made a bad choice based on the desire for wealth. And so here he is today. Now consider, we have to, this chapter is entitled The Wrath of God. We're going to see the incredible things that God can do today. We have to remember who we're dealing with. We're dealing with God Almighty, El Shaddai, the God who said enough, creator of all things, maker of the world and the universe, who is also full of love and grace, but will by no means clear the guilty. He is completely just. But he desires redemption for us, and he desires us to follow him and for him to be our guide in this life. This is who we are dealing with. And so there's always an opportunity for repentance given. So, it's a lot to hold in tension as we enter this chapter. I'm going to read the entire passage first and then unpack it. There's so much, we're going to just focus on a few special things here. Genesis 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. You've, you've heard of this guy on the street. The end is coming! But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him out. Seized him out and... Seized? 
him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor, also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the city of the valley, cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. Firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. And that's chapter 19. <laughs> there is so much bad here. The Hebrew word is tov. There's so much tov the knowledge between good and tov in this chapter. It's just, it's so difficult to find any of the good in here. In just digging deep, I can find that the Lord is faithful and true and just. The Lord will preserve the righteous and he will keep his promises, and he will give every single person the opportunity to repent. Lot was there. Lot called out to the men of the city, do not do this thing. They were given a chance. They were given one final chance. And they said, nope, we're going to do this anyway. And even after that, some of them that were in there, Lot went out again, flee! No, we're going to stay. Now, it's interesting. Um, 
God has not decreed much by this point, even within Scripture. He has not set a lot of laws in place. He's told us to be fruitful and multiply. He's told us there's going to be a price to be paid for the shed of human life. And that's about it up to this point. He's given us the covenant of circumcision, um, but that's specific to Abraham's family. But other than this, there aren't a whole lot of laws, so there's just the customs of the time. There are, there are very specific expectations of how they treat and interact each other that are pretty universal across this area. They're not recorded for us in Scripture, but you just do a search of any of the people groups of anywhere around there, and hospitality and honor are immensely important to this area. And we're going to hold that in mind as we break this down, because we're going to focus on three major things. We're going to talk about the sins of Sodom, this idea of hospitality, and Lot's interaction with his daughters there. The second section is going to be the destruction of, of Sodom and Lot's wife becoming a pillar of salt. And the last section is the rape of Lot. Let us begin. <laughs> the sins of Sodom. Sodom is going to be held up as the warning for the rest of time, but as well as Scripture itself, over and over again, do not be like Sodom, do not be like Sodom, or worse, you are worse than Sodom. Over and over and over through Scripture, it is the standard of wickedness that it rates everything against. And so what are some of the sins of Sodom as we look through Scripture? In Genesis 13, 13, the warning is right at the beginning. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw them. They had wealth without generosity. They did not own the standard that is paramount to all of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. They did not own this. They actually stood in the face of it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Leviticus 18.22 tied into this. You shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. There's a whole bunch of different interactions that, was just, that I could have read that were all about that same topic. But it's this idea of unnatural relations. And so this is really keying on the idea that there's a reason we call the word sodomy. It comes from what was happening in Sodom. People that were practicing homosexuality. Now, being that this is such a controversial topic in our culture, I want to break something down for a minute. It is the act that is the sin. It is not the desire. We hone so much in on that because it, there's so much fear around it. But that desire is no different than any other desire. The sin happens when you act upon it. Now, that is not the same as lustful intent, which Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. When you have lustful intent, it's as if you've already committed the crime. 
but simply having desire for something isn't the sin. It's when you act upon it. What needs to happen when you have that desire of something you shouldn't act upon is self-control, restraint, because everyone has that sin of desire in some areas of their life. Some it might be for the flesh, some it might be to steal, some it might be to lie. It's not a sin until you commit it. So we have to hold this in mind that simply because someone has that desire doesn't make them an evil sinner. It doesn't make them condemned. It makes them a person who struggles with something just like you and just like me. That does not mean we contone the actions. That does not mean we say, hey, it's okay. We encourage them to show restraint and self-control. Exercise the fruits of the Spirit. But we're not going to say, hey, it's happy, it's okay. None of the sins are happy and okay in any of these things. We can't treat one like it's so much vastly worse than all the others because it's not my sin. Was it a big deal? Clearly. Leviticus 19, 32 through 34. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. Lot is an old man here. He has wisdom. He knows what's right and wrong. He's made poor choices, as we all do. He's in a spot he shouldn't be right now, but he's got wisdom. They should have listened to him. And you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this is this idea of hospitality. How do you treat people you don't know? How do you treat people where you're going to come in contact with them and you have that response in your mind, well, I'm never going to see them again. For this culture, it would have meant so much more. I'm going to break this down. They have a culture of honor. We here have a culture of respect. Those are different things, actually. We understand respect here. We understand how we want to be treated, interacted, and how people are going to approach us. But if you do something shameful, it's not the end of the world for you. You deal with it. To give a, some example we can really grab onto, because how do you grab onto something that's not within your culture? Most of us have in some way heard or seen, whether movies or film or whatever it might be, samurai culture where it would have, if they did something shameful upon their family, it would be better for them to kill themselves, and they in fact did, to reclaim honor for their family. That's unfathomable to us. The idea that I'm going to kill myself so people will not treat my family like pariahs anymore. It's not fathomable, but for them, it was very real. It's how they lived. It's how they interacted. And hospitality was considered a divine appointment for you and a divine task given to you that that person was sent to you by God, a friend you haven't met yet, someone you were to treat well. There was all sorts of expectations and customs around it. Huge laundry list of the ways that they were supposed to interact with each other. And the concern here is that if you break those violations, that you become that pariah. 
You become that person or that group that the rest of the world is going to cut themselves off from. There's a mirror account of this in the book of Judges when the Levite goes to Gibeah and almost everything we're seeing right now in this scene happens again. But it's, in this time, it's actually carried out in Gibeah. And what ends up happening through this is the entire nation of Israel rises up and goes and wipes them out. That's the concern here. That's the, if we break these bonds of hospitality, we're going to turn the entire world against us. Brothers, don't do this thing. That's what Lot is worrying about here. It's a very real thing to them that it's hard for us to fathom because it's hard for us to look at this. How on earth could he have sent his daughters out to that? It's a great question. How do we deal with this? Lot is faced with the lesser of two evils. Was it good that he sent his daughters out or was willing to? No. But they live there. They're not strangers there. I can only hope that Lot had a plan that we're not privy to here. Because Lot is actually declared as being a righteous person in the rest of Scripture. I have to consider, okay, who else was outside? Lot's son-in-laws, because every man was there. And he goes out and tries to warn them. I can only hope that his expectation is that the son-in-laws would go, hey, those are our girls. Y'all bugger off. I can only hope. I don't know. Scripture doesn't reveal that to us. We have to assume the best intentions of Lot here as it's assumed, it's declared as righteous throughout the rest of Scripture. But he's left with these two terrible decisions because he chose to live there. He chose to put himself in a place he should have never been. And he's left with nothing but bad. All of this is bad. Psalm 54, 3, for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. These people are, they're committing a specific crime against God here by breaking these bonds of hospitality. There's some things we do, some sins we commit that are against each other. God doesn't, doesn't like them the same, but there's also specific sins that are against God himself. That's what they're declaring here. But at the same time, do not profane your daughters, Leviticus 19, by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. That's already happened. That's the great fear here. That's why what's about to happen is going to happen because it's returning to the pre-flood state when the land was full of violence and depravity and everything was wicked. And that's the concern of the Lord here, that this is going to go pervasive again. We've got to wipe this out. And God has other means than water. We're going to see exactly what that is. When we look at the destruction of Lot, or destruction of Sodom and Lot's wife becoming a pillar of salt. I did not word that sentence well. I mess it up every time. Understanding what happened here. Um, there's a site called Tal Haman, Tal El Haman, that is the presumed site of Sodom where they found uh, everything that seems to match up with the biblical account of it. And this idea of hellfire and brimstone and sulfur and raining from the sky, I always imagined um, at growing up um, hearing about that, 
giant rocks being thrown down, and they always have green fire for some reason. I don't know why that's always hellfire to me. But striking the earth and just wiping everything out. But what's interesting in this, when they have this site that they very strongly believe is Sodom, there are no impact marks anywhere. Everything is utterly destroyed. So to give an account of what, this, what they found at the site, it says this. Tal el-Haman was surrounded by a mud brick wall that was 13 feet thick and 100 feet high. But almost all of the wall had been sheared off. And within the ruins, they found melted shards of pottery and precious metals, all covered with salt heavy ash. They also found some strange materials, shocked quartz, a material that's common in nuclear bomb testing sites, tiny spheres containing iron and silica called sphericals, and nanoscale diamonds. For these odd materials to form, the temperature would have been over 2,000 degrees Celsius, the surface temperature of a small red dwarf star. How is this possible? It was way beyond human conventions at the time, considering the atomic bomb isn't even 100 years old. How could this have possibly happened? And we think, okay, meteorite, sure, hit the ground. There's no impact sites. So how did it happen? Well, it's actually known as a airburst of a meteorite. So I did some searching into this, and there's actually recorded accounts of when they've seen this happen with the same scale damage. And there's one in, uh, that happened in 1908 that I'm going to uh, read an account to you. Um, but before that, what happens with a meteorite airburst is that big old rock, most likely comprised of a lot of sulfur, came flying through the atmosphere at a speed of 11 miles per second. That is 39,600 miles per hour. Now, flying through space, there's no resistance, no big deal. The moment you hit our atmosphere, there's actually a whole lot in the way. That's why most things burn up, because um, of the amount of uh, pressure that happens and they get torn apart. It's called ram pressure. Now, a small rock, it'll just nothing, but a big one, a big enough one, will, that pressure will build, and because of the compacting of all the atoms, it creates this intense heat, and then once it's built enough, it literally rips the entire thing apart and boom. If it's the right size, which is the one that happened in 1908, it can give off an equivalent explosion of 15,000 tons of TNT, which is the capacity that the nuclear bomb we dropped on top of Hiroshima that killed 144, 145,000 people. It's the same equivalent blast. Now, what would that end up looking like? Well, this happened in Tunguska, which is in Siberia, northern Russia, in 1908. Same event. The one that happened in Sodom was likely a little smaller. So this is according to the testimony of S. Semenov, recorded by Leonid Kulik. At breakfast time, I was sitting by the house at Vanavara Trading Post, approximately 65 kilometers, 40 miles south of the explosion, facing north. I suddenly saw that direction to the north over Onkos Tunguska Road. 
the sky split in two, and fire appeared high and wide over the forest. The split in the sky grew larger, and the entire northern side was covered with fire. At that moment, I became so hot that I couldn't bear it as if my shirt was on fire. From the northern side where the fire was came strong heat. I wanted to tear off my shirt and throw it down, but the sky shut closed, and a strong thump sounded, and I was thrown a few meters. I lost my senses for a moment, but then my wife ran out and led me to the house. After that, such noise came as if rocks were falling or cannons were firing. The earth shook, and when I was on the ground, I pressed my head down, fearing rocks would smash it. When the sky opened up, hot wind raced between the houses like from cannons, which left traces in the ground like pathways, and it damaged some crops. Later, we saw that many windows were shattered, and the barn, a part of the iron lock, snapped. This is 40 miles away from the site of the explosion. In the site of the explosion, it leveled a forest of 80,000 trees to the ground. They've actually got photos of it. They're all black and white if you want to go check it out. The Tunguska event. Now, it was such immense devastation, we go back to Sodom, that they've actually accounted for that area. Nobody lived there afterwards for five hundred years. The area is so rich in salt. There's actually a mountain there that's three miles long. It's entirely rock salt. So rich in salt that it quite literally salted the earth. When it says all the crops and everything is wiped out, that's precisely what happened. And it was complete and utter devastation over in a moment. Gone. And so the Lord can use miraculous supernatural means, but quite often he just uses nature to accomplish his will. And remarkable what he can do with a rock in the sky. And so that leads to this very strange part of the passage where it says Lot's wife was turned to a pillar of salt. And I've pondered that because I've always imagined, again, just like the rocks and green fire, I always imagine she turned back and kind of like Medusa and, and she's a big old thing of salt. Now I got to consider something like that. That would have either been in some way preserved or there would have been a lot more accounts of this because that's a pretty crazy thing to see. So why isn't it? Why is there not a salt woman somewhere? Why are there not more records of that? And I was trying to consider what's going on. I'm going back to that account that they're finding in that site, Tal al-Haman. Everything is covered in salt, heavy ash. The entire region was salted after this from the explosion. So she stopped. They kept going ahead. She's caught in the blast. And salt is being scattered everywhere by the force of a nuclear explosion. It's very likely that they went back afterwards and she was completely embedded in salt and covered in all of it. And she, how do you explain something you can't understand? She has become a pillar of salt. And so... We have these people who saw 
absolute destruction happen. Cities completely turn to rubble in moments, and now they're terrified and they flee to the hills. And we lead to some really poor decisions in a cave. And a very unpleasant irony in that salt was off, salt, Lot was offering up his daughters to be violated, and they end up violating him. And the result of this is a lot of trials and struggles and strife for the rest of Israel's history. Leviticus 18.6, it says, None of you shall approach any of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. Then it goes through a very long list of all the different possible combos of that, so there's no exceptions that can be made. The end of that verse in 29 and 30, it says, For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Remember, the Moabites and the Ammonites came from this unholy union. Out of Deuteronomy 23, 2 through 6, it says, No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of the descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way. When you came out of Egypt, because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you, but the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all of your days forever. They were not hospitable. It's a big deal. These people became corrupted. They did not have a good foundation from the beginning, and it continues out of 1 Kings 11. Then Solomon built high places for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountains east of Jerusalem. They came up with horrific gods to serve themselves. Molech is the god that's depicted as a a bullhead, and he's got his hands outstretched, and it's over flames, and that's where they sacrifice children. This came from this, these people. It's just so much terrible. So much terrible can come out of putting yourself in a bad situation, and it's the dominoes just, they keep going. Effect after effect after effect after effect, and it's a whole lot of bad. But God, even in the worst things, can find a way to bring out some good in it. And that good is actually known, as, in this case, as the woman Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite who put her people behind her, declared that she would follow the Lord, and lived a life of sacrifice from thenceforth, not for herself in any sort of way. She headed towards destitute for the sake of caring for her elderly mother-in-law. And due to this, she becomes the great, great, great grandmother of King David. God reunites those lines back together. He brings redemption for what was lost there. And she is ever held in Scripture. There's an entire book in the Bible about Ruth 
because redemption is always possible for his people. So what, what do we take away from all of this? Came to the end of the chapter and it just it was just so so much bad. I mean, we could very easily say, don't make bad choices. <laughs> but what I found in a lot of scripture, there's a lot of things that are not held up as examples to follow. I was talking to Ty about this on Thursday. There's actually a lot of scriptures that are warnings to be wary of. We're used to in culture, anytime we have a moral, you've got a hero and they do the right thing, and it's amazing if you're just like them. But so often for scripture, it tells us, hey, this guy did a good job. Next sentence, they died. This person did a bad job, and we're going to give an entire chapter about them. It's clear. It's outlined the things we need to do that are good. The majority of the Old Testament is about people who made bad choices, and they're warnings for us. The entire book of Judges is a big old warning to follow diligently after God or terrible consequences arise. Even for those that start off good, it can go so bad. It's a warning to us. Keep your eyes on Jesus. So I'm going to close with just allowing Scripture to encompass all of this for us out of Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything exposed by the light becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then on how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand that the will of the, what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen.